This is a podcast from BBC Worldwide, who help fund new BBC programmes. Hello and welcome to The Fan Show. We've been talking to departing lead writer and executive producer Stephen Moffat about his time on Doctor Who. Today in part two, we're discussing Stephen's first three series of showrunner, from the appointment of Matt Smith to the global domination of the 50th anniversary. If Russell T Davis made Doctor Who a hit in the UK, I think it was your era of the show that made it a global phenomenon. There are lots of changes between the end of time and the 11th hour. Maybe the most obvious one is casting. You hired three young, relatively unknown actors as your leads. Was that a no-brainer? Casting is never a no-brainer. Uh, casting is the dark arts of television. Casting is everything. Casting is absolutely everything. People might admire production design. They might admire a decent script. They either fall in love with or don't fall in love with the people in front of them. So casting is everything. If you're asking, in, a, in effect, was not casting stars, well, generally speaking, one doesn't on Doctor Who. Generally speaking, uh, you don't cast an established star. It has happened, obviously, Chris, obviously Peter, but generally speaking, they aren't new people. Uh, someone who's, got, who's going to come to define the show. Uh, but yeah, it's never a no-brainer. Mm. It's a massive challenge. Yeah, yeah. Well, before you cast Matt Smith as a Doctor, is it right that you were going to cast David Tennant? You're actually going to continue him? Well, um, I mean, David was just going through the uh, the now to me very familiar uh, angst about leaving, mm -hmm. you know. So he had committed uh, to leaving with David and uh, with uh, with Russell and Julie, um, and he was he uh, when when I was first approached about this was it was it will be a new doctor, but then David had sort of a wobble, uh, and he phoned me up and said, so are you taking over the show? And I said, well, yes, because you can't lie to Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, and he said, yeah, well, maybe we should have a talk then. And I said, well, okay, yeah. But I mean, uh, and he said, and I said, I, he said I, I think I'm leaving, but I don't know. Piers, and, uh, Piers Wenger and I went and talked to David. I ran him through what that series would be if it was him. It would definitely have been his last one. There was no question about yeah. that, that we were coming. So uh, my version of that uh, series would be that uh, the David Tennant Doctor would crash into the back garden about to regenerate. And, and little Amelia would help him back to the TARDIS and he'd fly off. And then she'd meet him again when she grew up, but he'd have no memory of that because we come to realise that was the Doctor from the future. We'd make our way through the series to the point where the Doctor uh, gets back to that. I sort of yeah, used nice. that idea again later. So uh, that would have been the show, and he thought very hard about it, and then uh, he left me a message on my answer phone saying he'd thought very hard about it, and, uh, and as I thought he would, he decided to move on. I think that fourth year, uh, you know, the, the modern doctors and some of the old doctors just think, you know, it, that, that, that there's a dividing line there. Peter Davison met Patrick Troughton in the BBC car park just after he'd been cast as Doctor Who. And Patrick Troughton said to Peter Davison, uh, fantastic, you've got the time of your life. It's a brilliant show. Don't do more than three years. Right. That's. And then when I took on the from. job of uh, Doctor Who showrunner, Peter Davison told me that story and said, don't do more than three years. So. Tremendously sorry, Peter. <laughs> you I can't count very data. well, can I? Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think you know all the, the other doctors also. You know, you know, Matt thought about it, Peter thought about it, but in the end, they went back to being actors. Mm -hmm. I think you've uh, you've circled the part. You've done every part of it in three yeah. years, and that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. And there was also a bold new aesthetic for Series 5. A new logo, a new TARDIS inside mm. and out, a new Sonic, plus brand extensions like the Doctor Who Experience, Doctor Who Live, computer games, and of course a whole new visual language and cinematography for the show. We're anticipating the show to change drastically again. Is it the duty of the showrunner to be such an agent of change? No. No. 
it's not your duty to do anything of the kind. It's your duty to make good Doctor Who. That's it. That's all the audience cares about. Periodically, Doctor Who must change a lot because that's what it does best. It doesn't survive change. It survives because of change. So occasionally, often coincident with the change of showrunner, you have to uh, sort of wrench things around. I don't know that I went into Doctor Who. I didn't. I know I didn't go into Doctor Who thinking wouldn't uh, that, that that this was the perfect time for a massive change. But the fact was, Julie and Russell and Phil were leaving. David and Catherine were leaving. Uh, everything was changing. All we could do, the best way to conceal that level of change, was to change everything. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Every, yeah. If everything changed, it looks like a bold new decision and a new era. It was, frankly, if David and Catherine had wanted to continue, um, I wouldn't have done that. It would have been the same TARDIS. It, it would have, because the, it, there was no way that version of the show was worn out. That, that worked as a piece of showbiz. We've changed everything, hurrah! Um, but we weren't really doing that behind the scenes. We were saying, are people going to notice this is basically a different show with the same title? I mean, is that, is that all right? Yeah, are yeah. people going to get away with this? I don't think it is incumbent on a, a new showrunner of Doctor Who uh, to uh, to bring in their own vision, mm. it's incumbent upon them to make good Doctor Who. That means occasionally you look at the show and say, you know what, we're throwing everything out and we're starting again. Yeah, yeah. Because you can. Not everything you introduced was successful. Uh, you introduced a new design for the Daleks. How, yeah, there we go, <laughs> yeah. on our mugs over there. Yeah. Um, how hard is it redesigning an icon? Well, I, I would appear to make it look very difficult. It was, an, it was, a, it was a, f a salutary lesson, and let's just be clear. Uh, in talking about the redesigned Daleks, that the fault resides entirely with me, not with any of the brilliant team who made the new Daleks. Right? They, 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 they were beautiful in many respects, but it was my mistake uh, and a completely unnecessary one. But I'll tell you what was interesting about it. It was a fascinating lesson that I, I sort of never forgot, is we made the Daleks huge. Stupid idea. <laughs> Why? Well, you made the Daleks huge, you just move the, tar you just move the camera further away, and you make the Doctor smaller. Now, if you've seen those actual props, um, they're gorgeous. You go, you, if you go and see them in real life, and, or you see them on stage, they look amazing. Where they don't look good is on television, the only place <laughs> where it matters that they look good. <laughs> and we put so much thought and effort into our first block, which were the Weeping Angel episodes, the two-parter. The, uh, two episodes that I think stand up to this day as amongst the best we ever did. I think they're mm. absolutely tremendous episodes. I mean, Matt looks like he's been playing it for years. Karen looks like she's been it forever. It all looks terrific. I took my eye off the ball of, this, of the block two episodes. Mm -hmm. And I shouldn't have been visiting that set. I shouldn't have been, uh, you know, giving endless notes on the rushes that were unnecessary. I should have moved my attention to block two taking a look at those Daleks, looked at the camera test, thought, no, not, let's not do it. Most of the things I, I wasn't quite sure about uh, happened in that second block yeah. where my attention was on beginning. And it, beginning's easy, it's keeping going that's <laughs> hard. And keeping yeah. going is all about block too. As well as a bold change in look, there was also a distinct shift in tone for series five. From Russell's kitchen sink drama with companions' families to more, in my opinion, a more fairy tale escapist vibe. Was this a conscious effort to tap into an, um, an emerging young adult audience? No. Uh, and I, and I, I sometimes do think that Russell and I, uh, in order to make us look different, have to be caricatured in our approaches. I think most people who are not Doctor Who fans, if you describe the first four years of modern Doctor Who as a kitchen sink drama, would be wondering what the hell was in your <laughs> kitchen. I mean, and some people say, you know, it's a soap opera. 
He really isn't. No. <laughs> uh, so that, that, I mean, that's that, that's a grotesque exaggeration, and uh, and the fairy tale approach um, mm. is a grotesque exaggeration of mine. Really, it's about a wizard in a magic box or a magic wand. I don't think it, it fits. Sometimes it doesn't fit all the time. There's loads of episodes that are not fairy tale at all. It became the thing people said, and once you watch something through a filter of how it's already been described to you, you see it. Go look at any of Russell's series and say, fairy tale, and you'll, you'll find it there mm. again. Do any series of Doctor Who is like a fairy tale because that is the genre it most precisely resembles. I never went in saying, no, guys, I just need a bit more of a fairy tale filter on that lens. I never <laughs> said that. <laughs> Talking about narrative styles and tropes, we get a first hint in series five about your interest in religion, uh, with Father Octavian and his clerics who are a military force. And then in later seasons, we see the Church of the Silence, Order of the Headless Monks, and most recently, the actual Pope with the Catholic Church. Uh, why do you return to li uh, religion so much in your stories? I don't know, because I find religion a complete bore. I mean, I'm not remotely interested in religion. I mean, I'm an atheist, but not, not even a passionate atheist, if such a thing exists. It's never interested me. I've always tried to avoid having to go to church. I find the music all inescapably dreary. Genuinely, I find religion dull. I think it's a dull view of the universe. It does not do anything for me. All respect to those who see the world differently from me, that's entirely fine, but I, it does nothing for me. I just think I use religion the way I use cracks in walls. Father Octavian and all that. It was just, I had a bunch of soldiers turn up in the Weeping Angel one, and I thought, it's boring, they've all just called colonels, what can I do? What's the opposite? I said, I'll, I'll say they're all religious. <laughs> and I'll say they're all from the church, and that'll be more interesting. It does honestly seem like you're really interested in religion. That's why we asked the question, because it comes up so much. I, I, someone said that to me the other day again, but the absolute reality is I, I couldn't be more bored by it. So your first series was a critical and rating success, both in the UK and around the world. And then you have to do it all over again. Mm. How hard is it coming up with that difficult second album? It's very hard. It's very hard because uh, just like uh, the first and second block, you sort of, you get to the end of it uh, and you say, what, again? What are you talking about again? What do you mean again? We've just done it. Can I have a holiday? And the thing about Doctor Who is it overlaps. Mm -hmm. You know, you're working on the next series while you're still working on the last one. Um, and in that overlap, sometimes uh, you can really uh, lose track of what's going on. So it was, it was difficult. It was, of course, it was difficult. But by that stage... But that having got through through one series of Doctor Who, I knew what I was about. I was never going to have enough time to do anything. I knew that the, the way a working day or a working week in Doctor Who is, is you're not going to get everything done that you need to get done. So you have to kind of choose your failures. We're going to let that one go because we need to fix this. Mm -hmm. I could go to that meeting, but that script needs rewritten. You start to know where you must be not where you'd like to be or mm -hmm. not even where you would, it would be beneficial for you to be. Mostly, I'm trying to fix scripts. That's what I'm doing. And if I'm not doing yeah. that, that better be a damn good reason. And you like to, uh, well, you have experimented with format quite a bit mm. as well. Series six and series seven are split seasons. Mm. Uh, and then you introduce blockbuster season openers. And then series seven is all blockbusters. How much of these were stylistic choices and how much of these were practically driven? Actually, I think I can now say series six being split wasn't me at all. It was, uh, it was BBC One. They wanted a split season and there was something, it's pretty obvious, I can't remember what it is, but it's pretty obvious if you go back and look at the TV schedules, why we are split around the summer. I forget what, what, what was going on in the middle, but there's something we didn't want us there. 
And I looked at it and I thought, actually, you know, we could take it to that cliffhanger and resume. I thought, you know, that, that actually, that works quite well. Mm. That's quite good. Mm. And I guess you don't really have that much control really over scheduling no, a showrunner. Well, no, I think, no. I think fans assume this, you do. Yes, you some do godlike get, power. Yeah, yeah. No, I have absolutely no control over the scheduling. I, I deliver it when I'm told to. Every attempt that the BBC has made to schedule Doctor Who and Sherlock around each other, and they have made attempts, not, not because I've asked them to, I've never asked them for that. Every time they do it, it's been a disaster. They've always ended up at the same time. Every single time, and people keep saying, oh, you're scheduling around Sherlock. I say, look at it. I'm doing them yeah. on the same day, in the same month. How could that be to my benefit? So every single time I, I, I just use it, Sherlock, I was running between the two shows, and that was running between the 50th and uh, I think his last vow on, uh, on Sherlock was just, you know, just insane. You, yeah. No one's meant to live like that. Yeah. I think at this point it's worth talking about your love for writing timey-wimey stories. Timey uh, barring a few notable ex uh, exceptions, Doctor Who writers have used time travel predominantly as a vehicle to get to story, whereas you, in your stories, it's almost a character in its own right. What is it about you and time? I think time travel is fascinating. I think the timeline of a story is fascinating. Even if you take time travel out of the picture, when does a story start and when does a story finish and in what order do you tell it? This is not a matter of sequence, but it's a matter of point of view. Mm -hmm. From whose point of view are you telling this story? Mostly we tell story from God's point of view or from a, a universal observer's point of view. If we told the, told the story of a terrible disaster that happened, we'd tell it from a God's eye view. Fine, nothing wrong with that. Except nobody experiences the events that way. No one person experienced that. Everybody had their own story, their own version of it. And later on, somebody dispassionately pieced that all together and came up with a largely fictitious but probably fairly accurate version of the event. If you want to put people inside a drama, you have to go to point of view. The events as it happened to this person from beginning to end then as it happened to this person. Mm -hmm. and, you and, you, and you allow the audience to assemble their own God's eye view of the event. Yeah. I did timey-wimey stories before I did Doctor Who uh, in things like coupling. Uh, I would do things out of sequence, but I'd say, when people say, well, you love out of sequence, I'd say, no, it's not out of sequence. It's in the correct sequence as it happened to those people. Mm. I love an out of sequence story, but I, I find them infuriating unless there is a governing logic uh, that, that, that says why the story should be told in that, in that order. And it's about mm. point of view, this person's view of the event, that person's. Largely, uh, even in my era, the TARDIS is like a bus and it delivers you to the, to the next adventure. But sometimes, sometimes the Doctor's unique relationship with time can be at the centre of the story. Because it's not just that he's got a time machine. He doesn't just own a time machine. He lives in one. He lives in one. The whole universe is alive and well outside his blue doors. Mm. It's not that he, uh, that he knows that he was at Churchill's funeral. It's that he's having dinner with Churchill next Tuesday. You know, he has, that's a very, very different view of the universe. And when you're celebrating your main character and trying to see to some degree the, the world from his point of view, I think you can't ignore the fact that for him, everyone's still alive. There's everything to play for. Mm. Or when he's having a, a, a lonely, uh, morbid night with his electric guitar, he's thinking everybody's dead. <laughs> so sad. Whilst you've, you've won awards for some of your most timey-wimey scripts, like Girl in the Fireplace and Blink, 
paradoxically, for some fans, and you're going to have to forgive me for this, some stories uh, became quite hard to follow. I guess what I'm asking is how much of your era happened and how much of it unhappened? Uh, periodically, uh, we do house cleaning on Doctor Who. I think I've just done one again, which uh, allows you to correct the continuity to roughly the history of Britain as we know it. British history according to Doctor Who, it would mean that if you saw an alien, you'd say, oh, gee, is it Christmas? I mean, uh, I mean, you'd, just, you'd be so bored of it. So unhappening stuff occasionally, I think, is a necessary. I mean, Russell did it with uh, the Time War. I did it with the Big Bang, the big memory thing recently. You know, just occasionally you say, no, no, the new companion comes from our Britain, not alternative Britain, where Daleks are a commonplace. But if Chris does a big, the Daleks invade Earth story, I want human beings to be saying, what are these strange things? No, yeah. oh, geez, they're quite reliably oh, defeatable, again. aren't yeah. they? And you yeah. Just go into a room with a relatively narrow doorway and they're screwed. Uh, hard to follow. Uh, if they're hard to follow, it's because I've screwed up. Uh, if, they're, you know, if they're good and exciting, it's because I've got it right. The timey-wimey story is not Blink. And it's not uh, Girl in the Fire, it's not any of those. The impossible to track Doctor Who story is Day of the Doctor. Day of the Doctor, and I can say this, I wrote it. In what order does that happen? Where do you start? Do you start with Matt Smith? Do you start with John Hurt? Do you start with Paul McGann? Where do you start? And what happens next? I'm going to write the story saying, well, what happens next? Because technically what happens next is that bit and that bit. And then you get to the bit where the Doctor goes back along his own timeline and fixes where the painting is. Now, that's Doctor Who at its most accessible and multiplex. That is Doctor Who as Doctor Who for everyone, even if you've never seen it before. And it did mm. work from that point of view. And yet, by far and away, it is the most complicated, timey-wimey Doctor Who story ever told. If you get it right, it works fine. If you don't get it right, uh, then I end up confusing people, and that's, and that's my bad. If we're now talking over the length of Doctor Who, if you're talking about people saying, yes, but I've, I've analysed these three series of Doctor Who, and uh, does this all join up? I'll give you the answer now. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the 53 years of it, don't, 54 years of it, don't join up. Of course, they don't. The one impossible thing to make work is what age is Amy Pond, I think. That's, uh, yeah. that's impossible. There's no, way, there's no way she could be any... I mean, it, just, it just doesn't work. Yeah. I'm sorry, but that's not how the, the other 100% of the audience watch the show. Mm -hmm. They're not making a chart. <laughs> They're not looking at the wall saying, ah, there, 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 there. It's just not, yeah. not going to work. So I'm, I'm afraid that gets correctly short shrift. Uh, but in individual stories, if I've gone too far in, uh, in uh, complicating things, it's not an inherent problem with complexity or an inherent problem with time travel. It's just me not doing it very well. Well, some fans, as you know, are very vocal when they don't like something. And one of the things you've had to deal with that your predecessor didn't have to deal with as much mm. is social media. Mm -hmm. And it's not just having an opinion, it's people feeling like they need to be heard and responded to. You yourself left Twitter in 2012. Um, how did social media affect you as showrunner? Well, first of all, I left uh, Twitter in 2012 because I was having trouble meeting my friends at a pub. During the time I was on Twitter, people started communicating. The friends I knew were communicating with me on Twitter saying, oh, are you going tonight? And I wasn't seeing anything because there was just this vast column of people uh, mostly saying, uh, contrary to what people imagine, mostly saying very nice things to mm. me. And I was missing everything. I wasn't, so I thought, and I initially thought, can I edit this down so that I can just see my friends, which apparently you can. And then I just thought, oh, sod it. 
no one will notice if I just get rid of it. <laughs> Over the time since I've left, and I have had no temptation to go back, I think it's probably become a lot nastier, and people have talked. I know that uh, I see what sometimes people might say to Louis or to Sue or to Mark, and I think that's out of order. People should not be behaving that way. Uh, and I, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult and sometimes unpleasant subject. I don't know, because I... I socialise, as you well know, among Doctor Who fans. I, uh, I go to, uh, well, I be, have been to conventions. I'm sure I'll go to some in the future, and I've always known it to be a very, uh, a very friendly, uh, very creative, very bonkers community, which I rather like. Uh, and the, you know, the, the there's great artwork comes out of it. Great work comes out. Of it. People change careers because of it. It has a. It, it, it's a cradle for a, a next generation of a, of a creative community. I think that's very exciting. But an impossibly small number of incredibly rude, attention-seeking people have dominated, or it seems to me have dominated, the online discourse about it. And which means I have to say to all the writers and directors that come onto the show, you will not go on social media. You will not go there because I don't want you upset. I don't want you coming in one morning crying. I don't want you in a state of misery. And when you go to a convention, maybe be, 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 be wary of it. This pains me. This pains me ex to an extraordinary extent because the relationship between a fandom and a show should, should be permeable. They should, they should be talking to each other. Because particularly in Doctor Who, where the creative team of Doctor Who grew out of the fandom of the show, the idea that we don't just hang out in the same bar, the idea that the that the storyteller doesn't sit around the same campfire as the audience is abominable. It's not the way it's meant to be. We're not supposed to be off on the side of a mountain in a storm issuing proclamations uh, to the unworthies below. We're supposed to be out among our audience, talking to our audience. But if you have that poison, then you can't, with a good conscience, uh, suggest people do that. The very good answer to this is, those people are in a tiny minority. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are. They're, they're a tiny minority that um, is barely expressible. How many drops of poison in your soup before you don't want to have it for your lunch? Those people have driven a wedge between the creative creators of the show and the next creators of the show, mm. which is the fandom. Mm. And I think it's awful. Let's turn to a big milestone in both your career and the history of Doctor Who. The culmination of the show becoming a global phenomenon, the 50th anniversary special, The Day of the Doctor. Pressure, that is one word that springs to mind. Pressure and responsibility. How on earth did you cope during this period? Very badly. <laughs> very, very badly. <laughs> the same time as the 50th, we were doing series three of Sherlock and the reveal of how Sherlock survived the fall. So I was just thinking, all right, can I just make a piece of television that isn't, uh, you know, a, a huge national event that everyone is already cross about? The Doctor Who 50th, I mean, I, I think I've said it many times, but there wasn't anything very enjoyable about doing that. I, I look back on it with great satisfaction because I think it's a genuinely terrific episode of Doctor Who. I'll just say that. It is, um, it is. But at the time, I was just upset. Uh, I was just, everybody, was cross with me. I remember that. Everybody was cross. Everybody. The, the script was light. So everyone was cross with me. I'm saying, guys, who's in it? Who have you got? <laughs> no, well, they're all in. No, 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 no. You tell me who's under contract to be in it. Because I promised this year's Olympics. Could you tell me who's in this? Jenna. And that was the list. I'm saying, right, so I'm doing, 
I'm celebrating 50 years of Doctor Who with Jenna, who's wonderful <laughs> and one of my personal favourites, but I don't think that's where you've got to cut it. <laughs> so I came up with uh, a, an alternative version of the 50th, which was the Doctor having stepped into his own time stream at the end of the name of the Doctor, is eliminated from all of space and time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Clara is trying to remember him. And the Doctor turns up in various different fictional forms. And she says, that, that story's true. That wizard, that was the Doctor. And we have, so she keeps encountering this, and we have the Doctor played by a succession of very famous people. That was my plan. Very famous people. <laughs> As it turned out, um, David and Matt, neither of whom were under contract, uh, both said yes, thank God. David said, well, am I, uh, am I just the comic relief in this? And Matt said, why has David got all the jokes? <laughs> <laughs> so I was saying, do you want to swap? And they said, no. So, okay, <laughs> that's what we're doing. And they were having to read a script, which for the first and only time in their experience of Doctor Who, wasn't exclusively about them. It's just tough. You've always, I'll come, I'll come back to that subject because there's a funny thing for you to notice in mm. the day of the Doctor. But Christopher Eccleston said no. Uh, and, uh, and that was awful. That was just awful. I was so depressed that day because I'd written most of the script and he was in it and I didn't know what to do. And I was saying, well, you know, could we use one of the other Doctors? And the BBC were not unreasonably saying, you promised us the Olympics. So I, I went and finally, there was no ending to Name of the Doctor. Name of the Doctor at that point just ended with the Doctor going into the time stream mm. uh, with a big blank with me saying, I'll figure it out when we figure out what we're actually doing <laughs> for the 50th. So I said, okay, what if he goes in there and we discover to our horror that there was another Doctor. There was another Doctor. In that time that Michael Gray took the show off the air, there had been a whole other Doctor and we never saw him. And then as we were combing through the show saying, does he ever specifically refer to himself as the 11th? She doesn't, ex- I think it's once he says, he says of his face, he says the 11th, but he could have miscounted. I'm saying, well, wouldn't that be exciting? And he immediately I said it. I regretted that the words had come out of my mouth because everybody went mad with a joy for this idea. Mm. Faith Penhill saying, this is brilliant. That's brilliant. That's exactly what we need to be. A new doctor played by an incredibly famous distinguished actor. <laughs> Big ask. Uh, and I was saying, oh, no, no, look, we've changed the numbering. I can't change the numbering. What do I do? I change the numbering. Your fan brain what must a, have been going, oh. What people have got tattoos with the numbers. I mean, well, those people are going to be in agony mm. replacing the, the numbers. I mean, there might not be room for a new yeah. one. But that was, the die was cast. That was the right thing to do. I remember talking to Mark Gatiss about it. And he said, look, no, that's, he said, that's, that's right. Because the, the 50th has to do something new. Just, mm. just Raiding the back catalogue is not enough. Do something new, and that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, so I wrote it as the last line of the script is, uh, and the most famous actor in the world turns around, uh, introducing the, 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 as the Doctor. And we're saying, well, who could that be? Because if it's literally, I mean, if it's Brad Pitt, <laughs> oddly enough, oddly enough, you go, no. I mean, yeah. I think Brad Pitt is great, and he's obviously a massively beautiful man and a vastly popular actor, but you wouldn't want him as the Doctor, would you? He's not, he's not no, the Doctor. No, can't see it, no. 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 Also, we needed to be someone who could have been the Doctor in the 16-year gap. Yeah. It needed to be someone who, who in your ideal, most fran- frantic dreams, could have been the Doctor. The byword for the part was, you know, if it was John Hurt, it would be great. <laughs> and we didn't have a second idea. We did not have yeah. a second idea, so we sent it to John Hurt. We are weeks out from the show. We are weeks, maybe, you know, I mean, really small number of weeks out from the show like four weeks, something like that. It's terrifying. And he said, yes, thank God. And so Amazing. the 50th was saved. Because if some bloke had just turned around to be the doctor. <laughs> uh, so, um, so we went to John Hurt and 
dare I say it, I think that that worked amazingly. Oh, yeah. We, we, got, we got with a brilliant new doctor who managed to be the voice of the old show, yeah. even though he wasn't in it. But somehow you sort of think, yeah, well, he was around then and he was a famous BBC star throughout the time, mm -hmm. Doctor Who was on. He's sort of, he's sort of the Doctor. The thing I mentioned earlier that I'd return to is there is a unique element to Day of the Doctor, which may have troubled you as it's gone past and you've never quite known why this looks odd. In the Zygon scene, the scene where the, the, the three Doctors and Clara and Elizabeth I are um, working out what's been going on. They go down to the Zygon nest and they work out that they've gone into the paintings mm -hmm. and so on. There are shots you never see anywhere else in Doctor Who. There are shots of Matt Smith and David Tennant in character as the Doctor listening to other people. Mm. Never happened before. I mean, I'd never seen Matt Smith's face going, hmm. Mm. And David Tennant <laughs> going, hmm. Especially as the entire plan is actually worked out by Elizabeth I and they've got nothing to do with it. But they literally just never see that. David yeah. was always gabbing away and everyone was listening to him. Matt was always gabbing away and everyone. So there they are, they're going, hmm, good point, Doctor. I hate having to nod and listen to someone else. I loathe it with all my heart. But it was... Uh, I hadn't fun. clocked oh, on to that, but I, I, yeah, I see that now. Yes, yeah, listening yeah. face. Doctor's listening and going, hmm, this sounds like a good plan yeah. that I didn't make up. But in a way I did because it's him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As well as retrospectively introducing a new incarnation of the Doctor, the War Doctor, mm. uh, you've also reversed a decision of your predecessor by resurrecting the Time Lords. And at the end of the Day of the Doctor, it's suggested that the story for the next 50 years is finding Gallifrey mm. the long, long way round. Yeah. Yet we visit it... Oh, there it is. Two years later. <laughs> Why do we go back to Gallifrey so soon? Because I don't think there's any plot at all in the Doctor looking for Gallifrey. I think it's boring. I mean, I kept trying to, uh, when we were doing uh, um, Series 8, I kept saying, well, maybe we should, he could be looking for Gallifrey. And? <laughs> and, well, oh, it's not Gallifrey. <laughs> oh, still not Gallifrey. Um, well, should we go back? Oh, that's going to have an adventure anyway, but it's not Gallifrey, is it? Not Gallifrey. Uh, I, uh, I, think it, I think 50 years of that would have got quite boring. Yeah. So uh, introducing, as has been done occasionally, a quest into Doctor Who. Does it work? I mean, they did in the key to time season, even there, which I said it's a lovely season of the show, but it's you sort of think, oh, well, there's the bit. Yep, got that. Let's have an adventure yeah. now. It just it just adds on to the outside of it. So also the other thing is, uh, which is a, a great matter for me and Mark Gatiss, to hell with deferred pleasure. If something exciting is coming up. Do it now. Go on. Don't, don't, mm. don't wait for 20 years. Just do it now. Yeah. Oh, Gallifrey. There it was. <laughs> At this point, you knew you'd be saying goodbye to Matt. Uh, mm. Did you consider moving on with him? Uh, yes, uh, I did. In fact, I, I'd always sort of assumed that, uh, that I would leave with Matt. I was so insanely busy, I didn't have time to leave. I was season seven, day of the Doctor, time of the Doctor, uh, and people saying, well, who's the next Doctor? And I'm going, oh, what, what, what? what? Yes, yeah. better find one. And before <laughs> I know it, um, I'm uh, auditioning Peter Capaldi. That's w when I suddenly got excited. You know, I thought, my God, you could... Peter, Peter being the doctor, mm. that's, that's a whole new doctor. That's going to be a whole new sky for us to fly through. Leaving, uh, because Russell's much more organized than me, and that's not men's words, much more clever than me, decided to leave at the end of four years after his first year. I was sort of thinking, well, um, so, oh, you want a new, do oh, right, okay, <laughs> bugger. And, uh, so I, I, I just, I ran out of time to leave. Leaving Doctor Who, as I have discovered, is a lengthy 
lengthy process. Mm -hmm. Having said that, uh, the moment I thought about Peter as the doctor, uh, that, that that just set my head on fire. Mm. I was just so excited about that. So, and Sue's saying, "You're still there." I know. It's going on. Well, and then you did well. You did several more years off that. Four more years. Yes. And then... Yes. Well, that's another yeah. story. And that's, well, that's that's a story for part three. Part three. <laughs> we'll be back next week with some of this. I took Chris out for dinner just as a friend, just to hear what he was up to, but really to work out what his diary was. I was sort of asking casual questions like, are you doing a third series of, I don't know, Broadchurch? <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to this BBC Worldwide Digital Studios podcast. For more from Doctor Who The Fan Show, visit youtube.com forward slash Doctor Who.